Good evening and welcome again to our Bible study series in the book of Acts. We have now come to part 5 in a 12-part series where we are covering the entire 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And as always, I want to mention, if anyone uh, doesn't know it, the notes and recordings for all of these studies are available in several different ways. Uh, you can always go to the website new-life-ministries.org and search for the notes or the recordings there and download them. Uh, you can also listen live uh, each Wednesday night at 7.30, either on the telephone or online at mixlr.com and follow the broadcast name New Life Ministries. You can also subscribe to the New Life Ministries podcast uh, on your smartphone or other device, and you will automatically get any new recordings or notes as they're added. Okay, with all of that, we've come to page 67, if you're following in the notes. And as I mentioned, this is part 5, and this will be covering chapters 6 and 7 uh, in the book of Acts. I think it's important to keep uh, pointing this out. Uh, sometimes when you read the book of Acts, you sort of lose track of time, but we are still, in these chapters, 6 and 7, we are still looking at a church in Jerusalem. Remember in Acts 1.8, the charge was... Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. But they're still in Jerusalem. And most historical accounts would indicate that the Jerusalem church uh, lasted for somewhere between 10 and 15 years before they went out beyond the borders of the city. So, quite a long uh, period of time has already elapsed, and yet more will be passing before we even get outside of Jerusalem. So, we're still looking at a strictly Jewish church. These are Jewish believers in the Messiah, Jesus, and the gospel has still not really gone uh, outside to the Samaritans or the Gentiles. Uh, it'll first go to the Samaritans in chapter 8, and the Gentiles will have to wait until we get to chapter 10. But presently, we're still looking at a rapidly growing church in Jerusalem. And of course, all this began on the day of Pentecost with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And They've already gone through a number of periods of growth. Great numbers are being added now to the church. Uh, they've had some persecution. They've seen some of the apostles put in prison and even supernaturally released from prison by angels and so forth. So now we come to chapter 6, and I want to begin with the first seven verses, Acts 6, verses 1 to 7. 
In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, as I was just mentioning, notice verse 1, we're only talking about Jewish disciples. It mentions the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews. And again, in verse 7, so that we get the context clear here, it says the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and large numbers of priests became obedient to the faith. So we're still looking strictly at a Jewish church in Jerusalem. And once again, history tells us that a considerable length of time has now elapsed, certainly since the day of Pentecost, and perhaps even between the close of chapter 5 and where we have just read, a considerable amount of time has passed. So we read through the book of Acts and we can get through these first few chapters quite quickly without realizing quite a bit of time is passing between Acts chapter 1 and where we are now presently. So, we have a church that is growing very rapidly in Jerusalem, and of course, with growth, there comes growth pains. And we saw in Acts 5 certain challenges that the church had to deal with, with Ananias and Sapphira. They had hypocrisy trying to creep into the church. Ananias and Sapphira tried to lie to the Holy Spirit, and of course tried to lie to Peter and the other apostles with very, very dire consequences. Now, we see yet another attack on the church, but this is coming from within their own ranks. And up until this time, we have seen repeatedly mention made of the beautiful unity that existed amongst all of the believers in this early church. Talks about it in Acts 1, again in Acts 2, 
and again in Acts 4, how they were one heart, one mind, they were all in one accord, they were even selling their houses and lands and distributing the money to the poor and the needy, and there was real love and fellowship and sharing and caring amongst all the believers. But suddenly we see a shift. Let me read verse 1 again. In those days, and again, a number of years may have passed since the day of Pentecost, so this didn't just happen a few days after the great revival. These things often slowly evolve over time. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Now, it seems that the practice by this time in the early church, and there's some mention of this in Paul's letter to Timothy about taking care of the widows who didn't have family members to take care of them. It was the church's responsibility, not the government's. It was the church's responsibility to take care of the widows, the poor, and the needy. And we can already see this division between Jews, but Grecian Jews and Hebraic Jews. Some of these may have been uh, Greek proselytes, meaning they're Greeks who converted to Judaism, but then they became followers of Christ. They were saved, born again. Whatever the case may be, they're all Jews, they're all believers, but the enemy is trying to drive a wedge now between them. The Grecian Jews complaining against the Hebraic Jews. And where we once saw only um, unity, harmony, all in one accord, we now see the picture marred a little bit with some discord, complaining, division. And specifically, the Greek-speaking Jews, I, I hate to keep mentioning this, but I, I need to emphasize, these are believers. These are all baptized, spirit-filled believers, but the Greek-speaking Jews are now speaking evil. They're complaining about the fact that they're not being treated equally or they're not being treated as well as the Hebraic Jews, those from Jerusalem, those who would have been what we would call real Jews, Hebrew-speaking Jews. Let me read this from the New Living Translation, verse 1. It says, But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. Rumblings of discontent. And we see later when Paul writes to the churches, he was well aware of the flesh, and what it does. Uh, the flesh does not die easily, even though 
we were crucified, dead, and buried with Christ in water baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. The old man, nevertheless, has to be reckoned, crucified, and dead each and every day. And we have to keep putting off the old man, putting off that old nature. Otherwise, it will try to resurrect. And so, what we see here in living color in the early church is what happens in every church. The flesh dies hard. We see these little carnal divisions and factions and complainings and and prejudice and infightings in every church. It's in every church. And we have to understand what God's cure for these things is. What is the solution for these kinds of carnal infightings? Well, in Galatians 5, verses 15 and 16, we're not going to read the whole uh, passage, but Paul talks at length about the works of the flesh, how the flesh, the old man, the old sin nature, tries to resurrect itself and manifest itself in the life of a spirit-baptized believer. And, of course, this will spill over into the church, the church fellowship, and the church community. Galatians 5, verses 15 and 16. I'm going to read from the New King James Version. Paul is writing to believers here. He says, But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And if you look at that list in Galatians 5, a lot of the things that he lists there center around this kind of behavior. Jealousy, envy, divisions, factions, quarrelings, all these things manifest when the flesh is not crucified and put in its place. And Galatians 5 is very clear. The only way to do that is to walk in the Spirit, be filled with the Spirit, and allow the Spirit to wage war on the flesh, and to overcome it. Now, with this situation that arose in the early church, it was brought before the apostles, and God gave the apostles tremendous wisdom on how to resolve this problem. The twelve apostles realized that as the church was growing, some provision now needed to be made to handle this kind of situation and situations that would arise in the future. So their counsel was choose seven spiritual men to handle this problem. Now, they could have easily said, all right, we're going to fix this thing, and rolled up their sleeves and gotten in there and taken charge of the matter. But we'll see in a minute, very wisely, they knew that was not their job 
That was not their calling, and God did not want them getting directly involved in these matters. And therefore, their advice was to the church, to the church community, to the congregation, choose seven men, and they have to meet certain qualifications, and then bring them before us, and we will give our final approval for those seven men to handle this responsibility. Now, again, the responsibility, very simply, is to handle the distribution of food to the widows. And the scriptures don't go into detail, but there may have well been some prejudice, perhaps some favoring of the Hebraic Jews over the Grecian Jews. We don't know exactly what was happening. Their wisdom now is find a team of seven men, we're going to put in charge of this and make sure that it's handled properly. And these seven men, all they're going to do is wait on tables and deliver food. They have to be spiritual men. Men of great spiritual caliber and character. And although the text we just read doesn't specifically call them deacons, most Bible scholars and even certain Bible translations recognize these as the first seven deacons in the church. And I'll explain some of the reasons why in just a moment. But these seven men now are going to take charge of the distribution of food. That's all. That was the responsibility that they needed to take care of, the distribution of food to these widows. Now, in verse 2, uh, let's go back and look at this. Um, it says, So the twelve, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. That expression, wait on tables, is the Greek word diakoneo. Sounds almost like deacon, and it is. It's almost the same word, just in the verb form, for the Greek word from which we get deacon. And the word uh, diakonos, which is the word for a deacon, simply means to run errands, an attendant, a table waiter, a minister, a servant, or a deacon. So, what we're looking for here is seven men to wait on tables, to deacon, literally, is the Greek word. We're looking for seven who will deacon, who will run errands, serve, minister, and specifically, wait on tables. Okay? So, as I mentioned, in other places in the New Testament, this is the very word, diakonos, which is translated deacon, 
but it's often, often translated a servant or a minister. But specifically, you find it translated deacon or deaconess. There were male and female deacons and deaconesses cited in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 3, verse 8, and again verse 12, in Philippians 1, 1, and in Romans 16, verse 1, if you look at the Amplified translation for Romans 16, 1. Now, interestingly, in the Amplified Bible, when you come to Acts 21, verse 8, it refers to these seven men as the deacons. Let me read that portion from the Amplified version of Acts 21.8. It says, We went into the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and then in brackets, first deacons, and stayed with him. So, one of the seven, and in the Amplified, seven is capitalized, indicating it was this specific group of seven that were chosen in Acts chapter 6. So, long story made short, most agree what we're witnessing here is the choosing of the first deacons in the church. Paul would give specific guidelines to Timothy, and we're going to look at that shortly, in 1 Timothy 3, for future churches that needed to choose deacons, table waiters, servants, or those who were errand runners. That's literally what a deacon does. Runs errands, uh, works, serves, ministers, waits on tables, etc. Now, strangely, just to wait on tables, the apostles set a very high bar for the seven that the church were charged with choosing. The apostles were not going to go looking for these seven men. They told the church to choose them out, because they would know best from their own ranks who was who. And here's what they were told to do. Verse 3, Brothers, choose seven men from among you, from among you, who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Now, in the NIV, which I just read, read <clears throat> excuse me, which I just read, it seems to be two qualifications: known to be full of the Spirit and known to be full of wisdom. But in the original text, and the King James and New King James get this closer to the original Greek text, there are three specific qualifications that the apostles mentioned that these candidates needed to meet. Let me read to you now the verse from the New King James, verse 3 again. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of, number one, good reputation, number two, full of the Holy Spirit, and number three, full of wisdom. 
So three qualifications have a good reputation, they're full of the Holy Spirit, and they're full of wisdom. Now, these pretty much speak for themselves, but let's break them down a little bit. Of good reputation, this is interesting, it comes from the Greek word martyreo, which we saw in Acts 1.8, which is the same root word translated witness. After you receive the Spirit, you will be my witnesses, literally, my martyrs. Martyr is what's taken from this Greek word, martyreo. So, they need to be of good reputation. Literally, what the apostles were saying, they need to be good witnesses. They need to have a good, honest report, a good testimony, or as the New King James translates it, with a good reputation. But this really gets to the heart of Acts 1.8, the reason why the Holy Spirit was poured out was to make them into witnesses. Witnesses of Christ. Witnesses of the resurrection. So, qualification number one, they've got to be real witnesses. They've got to have a real testimony. And this goes along with the second qualification, which is why the NIV ties them together into one. They must have a testimony that they're full of the Holy Spirit. A witness is full of the Spirit. Acts 1.8, they became witnesses when they received the Holy Spirit. So, second qualification, they must be full of the Holy Spirit. I actually like the NIV translation. Choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit. Known to be full of the Spirit. And remember, they were told, choose from among yourselves. They would have known right away at least seven from their own numbers, oh, there's no doubt, Philip's full of the Holy Spirit, he's one. There's no doubt, Stephen's full of the Holy Spirit, choose him. Get this guy, Timon, we know him, he's full of the Holy Spirit. You see, they had a testimony. They had a known reputation already in the church for being full of the Holy Spirit, being faithful witnesses of Christ, men of proven character, with a real testimony that they were followers of Christ. And thirdly, known to be full of wisdom. The Message Bible says good sense. (laughs) They had good sense. They had godly wisdom. And now I mentioned Later on, Paul would actually amplify this a bit, writing to Timothy, giving him and other uh, church leaders some guidelines to follow in choosing deacons for churches. Let's look at this. 1 Timothy 3, 
verses 8 through 12. Deacons likewise, same Greek word, deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then, if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife, and must manage his children and his household well. Now notice, if you look at this whole list, the main thing Paul is stressing for anyone that might be considered for this position of a deacon is they have a good testimony. They have a proven track record. They have a good reputation. Top of the list. They must be men worthy of respect. They're already respected in the church. The church already knows who these people are. They already have a testimony in the church. They walk with Christ, not indulging in much wine. They're not greedy of dishonest gain. They keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. They're witnesses of Christ. They know the word of God. They know the deep truths of the gospel, of the word of God. And they walk uprightly. They walk with a clear conscience. Nevertheless, Paul says they must first be tested. You don't just grab a brand new believer or a brand new visitor who just started coming to the church last week and put a badge on them and call them a deacon. And sadly, that's what many churches do. And I'm going to tell you why. They do it so they can keep them in the church. That is not right. That's not the purpose for deacons. The office of a deacon is a very important office in the church. And these people that are considered for this office, these people are to be screened very carefully. That's basically what Paul is saying in verse 10. They must first be tested. They must be screened. Take some time to observe them. Watch their lifestyle. Observe their character. See how they conduct themselves. See if they have a real testimony of being faithful in the church, faithful in attendance, faithful in their support of the church. He says, once they've been tested, if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. But again, the emphasis on faithful men, people with godly families, if they're married, um, and so forth. Back to the three qualifications given by the apostles, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, 
full of wisdom. Now, taking this from the NIV again, known to be full of the Holy Spirit. This cannot be proven, but it is possible that what the apostles were really implying is choose from among the original 120 who were there on the day of Pentecost, we know those 120 believers were all filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. doesn't say that, but it's possible. In any event, these seven men that were brought before the apostles, they all were known, no doubt in anybody's mind, they were all known to have these qualities. Good testimony, full of the Holy Spirit, walking in wisdom. And you know, I often pose this question to churches. If we were to do this in our church today, and we were to start to look around, because remember, it was choose seven men from among you who are known to have these qualities. Good testimony, witnesses of Christ, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. As we looked around, and we looked at Joe, and Bill, and Bob, and Juan, and Jose, would there be any doubt in our mind, or would we say immediately, oh yeah, Jose, he's definitely full of the Holy Spirit, he's a candidate. Or would we scratch our head and say, you know, I'm not really too sure about Bill. He doesn't come to church very often. I've never really seen him get filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure. This is a very important a very important point, folks. We should have believers in our churches with this testimony known to be full of the Holy Spirit. These were the ones that were considered for this office, even to wait on tables. Now, back to the apostles. They went on to say, we're not going to do this. We're neither going to take responsibility for the distribution of the food. We're not even going to take responsibility for finding these seven men. That's your job. Because we have a different job. We have to stick with our job description. What was their job description? Verse 4. We will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. They had a clear understanding of what God had called them and separated them to do. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. And they could not be moved from that. I'm sure there was a temptation to move away from that and get involved in these business matters and trying to take care of the problem between the Grecian Jews and the Hebraic Jews and try to find these table waiters. But they could not be moved from their calling. Let me read verse 4 to you from the King James and then from the Amplified. King James says, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. I actually prefer that over the NIV. 
It's a little stronger. NIV is, we will give our attention to prayer and the word. King James, we will give ourselves. We will give of ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Amplified, I think, captures this. We will continue to devote ourselves steadfastly to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. The apostles seem to have a very clear revelation, a very clear understanding of their calling, their ministry, their job description. And there must be, I can't emphasize this enough, there must be some leaders in the church like this today who are called, consecrated, dedicated, set apart, devoted to prayer and to the Word of God. And they don't get sidetracked and all uh, distracted with the business matters of the church. Very sadly, most pastors, most pastors of churches today end up becoming more like CEOs of corporations. They spend most of their day in business meetings, finance meetings, dealing with business matters, worldly, uh, mundane matters of the church, and very little time spent in prayer and the Word of God. A survey was done some years back of thousands of pastors across the country. And their names remained anonymous, so there was no fear of telling the truth. They asked these pastors and leaders, approximately how much time do you spend on a daily basis, take a whole week and divide it up into seven equal parts, how much time on average do you spend per day in prayer and in the Word of God? The results of the survey were absolutely terrifying. The average for these thousands of pastors and church leaders came out to somewhere around 10 minutes a day. 10 minutes a day of prayer and Word of God, and they're supposed to be leading the church. Many of them leaders of huge churches, mega churches of 2, 10, 15, 20,000 members, and yet 10 minutes a day devoted to prayer and the Word of God, and the rest of the day to other matters. Again, God knew what he was doing in the Old Testament when he set apart Aaron and the priests and one entire tribe, the Levites, to devote themselves to nothing else but ministry unto God and ministry to the people. They were not to be involved in secular work or business. They were set apart to the ministry. Likewise, here in the New Testament, we can see from the very start, 
Jesus set apart these apostles. He devoted three and a half years to training, preparing, mentoring these 12 apostles. And of course, we're talking about 11 of the original ones and the 12th one that was chosen to replace Judas, who betrayed Jesus. But emphasis on the apostolic ministry is seen again here. They were set apart for spiritual matters, dedicated to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Notice also the order. The order is significant. Prayer first, and then ministry of the Word. Here, we can also get this wrong. Everybody wants to be a preacher. Oh, they want to get behind the pulpit. They want to preach. They want to teach. They want to be on TV. They want to be known as the voice of God. And preach, 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 but very little prayer. Prayer first, and then minister. Uh, the training I got in the early years of my ministry, and this was not a law, but I used it as a guideline, and it's helped me a lot over the years. The training I got is for every hour you spend behind the pulpit, plan on spending two or three either on your knees or in your own personal study of the Word of God. That's a pretty good rule to follow. Three to one. Three times as much time in your own personal devotion as in your public ministry. Particularly putting prayer first and then the ministry of the Word. And personally, when I minister the Word, I, of course, spend lots and lots of time in preparation, studying the Scriptures, looking at the different words, perhaps looking at what others have written or taught on specific passages. But when it comes time to teach or preach, it's not so much praying for the message, it's praying that my own heart, my own spirit, will be prepared. That I will be in tune with God, that I will have the anointing of the Holy Spirit to be able to minister. So, be that as it may, I think the order here is significant. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. They were devoted to both. When the apostles presented this counsel to the believers, verse 5 says, this proposal pleased the whole group. This proposal, the wisdom that obviously God had given to them, that they're now explaining to the church, it pleased everybody. It brought unity, it brought satisfaction to everyone's hearts, and it seemed to be an immediate resolution of the problem. Now, looking a little bit more carefully at the next few verses, 
and what actually happened, we begin to marvel even more at the grace and the wisdom that God had placed on these twelve apostles. And here's why I say that. If you go back and look at the list of the seven names that were finally approved to be these deacons, uh, I'm going to read the list again. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. The interesting thing is, at least five of the seven names in that list, and you might even be able to tell it by hearing their names, these are Greek names. So, the majority of the men who were chosen for this task were Greek-speaking Jews. Remember, the whole problem was Greek-speaking Jews complaining that they were being left out in the distribution of the food. So lo and behold, here we have a majority of the deacons who are going to attend to this matter are certainly going to be sensitive to the problem. They're going to be sensitive to any prejudice or favoritism that might have been shown in the past. They're going to make sure that all that is erased and evened out now. This was a most gracious concession to the very group that had been complaining and possibly wronged, namely the Grecian Jews that made up the church. And I've written in the notes here, uh, I'm just going to read this, when the love of God fills men's hearts, It triumphs over pettiness and selfishness. And this is what's desperately needed in the churches today. Because we still have this garbage surfacing in different forms, maybe in different kinds of racism, black-white issues, Hispanic versus American issues, all kinds of things. And it goes even deeper than that. There are divisions amongst Hispanics. There are divisions amongst blacks. There are divisions amongst white Americans. Why? Because of the flesh. It's because of the flesh. It's because of sin. It's because of carnality. And we need leaders in the church with the wisdom of God to address these problems and not those who would keep feeding the flesh, with racism and divisive teachings and divisive messages and divisive comments. The flesh is what was causing this, and God's Spirit brought wisdom to smash the flesh, to triumph over this pettiness between Greeks and Hebrews and whatever else it was, that was trying to bring division in the early church. We're now going to move from discord back to one accord because of the wisdom that God gave the apostles. Very simply, select 
seven men whom we may appoint over this business. That's an important verse for us to look at carefully. You select them. He gave the whole congregation the responsibility of canvassing, searching for candidates to bring before the apostles, but ultimately it would be the apostles who appointed them over this business. Now, the word there, appoint, is a Greek word uh, which is normally translated ordain. It means to place down permanently, to designate, to set, or to ordain. And certainly, this could be translated, select seven men whom we, the twelve apostles, whom we apostles may ordain over this business. So, the selection was done by the church, the ordination was done by the apostles. And Paul uses this same word again in his letter to Titus, where he talks about the ordaining of elders. Elders are different from deacons. Uh, before the verses we read a moment ago in 1 Timothy 3, Paul first talks about the qualifications for elders. Nevertheless, in Titus 1.5, the same word, appoint, set, ordain, is used where Paul says to Titus, I want you to ordain elders in every city. Set them in place permanently. Designate them. Appoint them. So, in the overall church government that was beginning to emerge now as the church grew and matured, you had the apostles who were responsible for ordaining elders and deacons. Elders being the pastors, the local leaders in local churches, deacons, as we've just studied, the servants, the errand runners, those who took care of the the business of the church, so to speak. The apostles were the ones who were ultimately overseeing the appointing of these different ministries, both elders and deacons. When they did all of this, when they chose these seven men and brought them before the apostles for them to be appointed, there were very, very positive results. Now, let me read again from verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. That's a little different from the actual qualifications. He was known not only to be full of the Holy Spirit, but full of faith. Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert, obviously a Greek, to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. 
remember, it's the apostles who are going to appoint them, ordain them. How did they do that? They prayed and laid their hands on them. But the church brought these seven men to the apostles. The apostles prayed and laid their hands on them. This is one of several instances in the New Testament where we see the doctrine of laying on of hands. Hebrews 6 verses 1 and 2 talks about foundational truths, foundational doctrines of the church. Interestingly, one of them is this doctrine of laying on of hands. It's something that I don't think is very well understood in churches today, and it's not my place right now to teach on it, but uh, Paul did say to Timothy, don't lay your hands suddenly on anyone. And I think he was referring to this aspect of appointing deacons and elders. Don't just grab somebody, lay hands on them, and call them an elder or a deacon. Do this carefully and prayerfully. Screen them, test them, make sure who they are, and then after prayer, after fasting, lay hands on them and appoint them, ordain them to their particular ministry or responsibility. So the apostles were the ones who actually appointed them and confirmed them through the laying on of hands. Verse 7, after all this was done, it says, so the word of God spread. God was pleased with these actions. It restored unity. It restored harmony to the church. And once again, the church begins to grow. It says, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem, we're still just in Jerusalem, it increased rapidly. But here's an interesting thing we haven't heard before. A large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Previously, we've heard a lot about the priests, uh, the high priest, the religious leaders, only in the context of the council, the Sanhedrin, persecuting the apostles and the church. But now, large numbers of those priests are defecting from the Jewish priesthood. They're getting saved, baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they're also joining the church. Let me read it again. The word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. <clears throat> Luke, the writer of Acts, um, he's a very careful historian. He's very careful in the way he documents things, and from time to time he gives what I would call progress reports in the book of Acts. 
And there are a number of them. This is one of them. What we just read in verse 7 is a progress report. Number of disciples increased rapidly, and large number of priests became obedient to the faith, and the word of God spread. I've given a long list of these progress reports in the book of Acts. We've already encountered them in chapter 1, in verse 15, chapter 2, verse 41, chapter 4, verse 4, and chapter 5, verse 14. And we'll encounter a number more in later chapters, chapter 9, chapter 12, chapter 16, chapter 19, and all the way up till the final chapter, 28. Luke gives these little reports on how the church is progressing, how it's growing, multiplying, more souls being added, signs and wonders, etc. This addition now of seven deacons to take care of the business affairs of the church, it seemed to propel the church forward in a great way. They were able to launch forward uh, with the gospel, with new inertia, with new force and power. Now that it's been clearly delineated, the apostles are giving themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. There are new offices that are being filled in the church with those with spiritual testimonies who can take care of service and other business aspects of the church. As I mentioned, uh, one of the greatest things that it's easy to pass over in what we just read in verse 7 is a large number of priests becoming obedient to the faith. Now think about that. These were trained, they were known to be members of the priesthood, um, <clears throat> they had a lot of authority, a lot of honor was given to these priests. They had very high positions in the Jewish uh, society. For them to leave all of that and to become followers of Christ was a very great thing. And it meant they must have had a real experience with Christ, a real deep conviction about the truth of the gospel the reality of the resurrected Christ <clears throat> and the mighty Holy Spirit that was moving in the early church. Some of these were the very ones that had been members of that Sanhedrin and those council meetings that were grilling and cross-examining the apostles, threatening them to stop speaking in Jesus' name. These are the very ones who had once sought the destruction of of Christ and his church, now they've become obedient to the faith. So, we've just covered seven verses tonight, and this is where we'll have to end, but quite a lot has happened in these seven verses, and of course, we're not quite sure how much time has been covered, but certainly a number of years have elapsed already from the day of Pentecost to where we are by the time we've reached Acts 6 and verse 7. 
where great growth has taken place in the church. Many priests are getting saved. Deacons have now been installed and ordained to take care of certain activities and responsibilities within the church, and the church continues to grow. But, as I've been pointing out, it starts to sound like a broken record, but each time we have one of these progress reports of new growth, signs and wonders, many believers being added, added, etc., get ready because a new wave of persecution is about to come. And that's exactly what we will see next time in one of these seven deacons, namely Stephen, who has the great and glorious honor of becoming the first martyr. Not just a witness kind of a martyr, but a literal martyr. The first Christian to give up his life for the faith. More about that next time as we continue on in Acts chapter 6. But let's close for now here at this stopping point in prayer. Father, I thank you for the Word of God. Word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. And Lord, we can learn so much from each and every word of God. And even this short little passage that we've studied tonight in Acts 6, we begin to see growing pains in the early church. As they grew, they encountered problems, and they sought God, and they found solutions to the problems. And you gave them wisdom how to navigate these waters, and how to grow out of these situations. And Lord, they overcame discord and division and prejudice and divisions that were trying to spring up in the church. And by your grace and by your wisdom, they overcame those things. And they were able to maintain harmony and unity in that church. God, we pray for every church in these last days, that you would help them to overcome these carnal infightings, as Paul referred to them, biting and devouring one another, racism and and jealousies and envies and factions and one group against another group, one language group another against another language group, one culture against another culture. God, your Holy Spirit came to break down every wall of division and to make of many, many people one body in Christ. Even to make Jew and Gentile one body in Christ. So we pray for a mighty moving of the Holy Spirit to put to death every carnal division every faction, every prejudice, every carnal distinction that the enemy would try to use to divide the church. God, unite us in the love of Jesus. Unite us in the Holy Spirit. And God, we pray also that you would set your church in order. You would raise up real elders, real deacons that meet 
the biblical qualifications that are listed in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 of what a real elder is to be, what a real deacon is to be. And God, that the church would mature and grow in character, grow in holiness and righteousness, that you can continue to send great growth and great revival. Lord, we commit ourselves into your hands tonight. Bless each and every one that is participating in this Bible study. We pray, O God, as we continue through this 21-day fast, you would cleanse, purify, strengthen, draw us closer to you, and unite us together as one man, one body, one holy nation, seeking you, walking with you, a church, a bride, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. 